Great, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help me to speak clearly and please help us all to hear and to apply what we learned this afternoon. Amen. Amen. So in Daniel 6, it's all great fun, isn't it? Daniel and Diane in the lion's den. Now, looking back to the first session this morning, I think you'll agree that what we've seen of Daniel then, in chapters 1 and 2, Daniel was quite an exceptional teenager. Uh, My two children were teenagers not that long ago, and although I love them to bits, they were not known for their calmness under pressure, wisdom and tact in the face of authority, and knowing exactly how far was just far enough to get involved with the world. On the other hand, in some ways, Daniel was a typical teenager. He took risks, don't they all? In some ways, his potentially suicidal mission to see the king might look like a 6th century BC version of driving at 90 in your dad's car shortly after passing your test. Apparently, the frontal lobe of the brain is not fully developed in teenagers, meaning they're far more likely to do things without thinking of the consequences, believing they're immortal. So maybe Daniel's actions in chapters 1 and 2 were just the rash actions of a teenager, a godly teenager, but still the kind of poorly thought-out gung-ho behaviour that we grow out of. Well, tragically, I think we often do grow out of being a Daniel, don't we? But it's not because we grow up. It's because we grow cold. We grow cold towards God. And that often shows itself in two ways. We either become cynical or we become comfortable. Life's hard. Things don't always go the way we want. Standing up for Jesus perhaps has led led to us missing out on promotion or losing friends. Missing out on some of the fun our non-Christian friends are having. Doing the right thing by not dating that gorgeous non-Christian guy. And now you're single, with no prospect of marriage in sight. Christian giving has meant less money for luxuries, which, to be honest, you do slightly resent. Years of praying for loved ones, and they're still not Christians. You aren't appreciated for all you do at church. Sometimes you wonder why you bother at all. Of course you still go along, but it's out of habit, or the fear of what people might say if you didn't. On the other hand, perhaps life hasn't been hard for you at all. You're actually doing pretty well. You've been promoted. You have a lovely home, a happy marriage, good-looking, sporty, academically successful children, and enough money, even after generously giving to the latest church appeal, for the ski trip some soaked summer holidays and various glamorous city breaks during the year. Yeah, you used to be in church every Sunday without fail, but now, well, what with supporting your kids in sports tournaments, uh, weekends away, and to be honest, the odd late night on a Saturday, well, you know how it is. We're just so busy nowadays. Cynical or comfortable? Well, I wonder how Daniel has turned out after the typical enthusiasm of youth has faded How's he getting on in his day-to-day spiritual life? We saw a bit of that in uh, Daniel chapter 5, didn't he? But we're going to see more uh, in Daniel chapter 6. Did he just do what was expected when required, as it can be so easiest uh, for us to do as we get older? Or was he still firing on all cylinders for the Lord? In Daniel chapter 6, we see that Daniel is not cynical or comfortable. He is consistent. He is just the same Daniel. 
Daniel 6 takes place 65 years after Daniel 2. Daniel is an old man. He has worked at the heart of government under at least three equally difficult kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and now Darius. Darius wants Babylon well-governed, and Daniel gets one of the very top jobs in verse 2, one of the administrators. His job is to make sure that the king does not suffer loss, that he's not cheated by corrupt officials. He is honest, incorruptible, despite working at the heart of a corrupt regime. He is, in verse 3, exceptional. The king basically wants to make him prime minister, and the other officials, other officials are jealous and want to find grounds for false charges against him. They can't. Verse 4, they could find no corruption in him. He was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. The only thing against him is his faith, which stands firm even in the faith, face of death by lions. Daniel is consistent. He is the same upright, godly, risk-taking Daniel that he was when he was a teenager. Despite years in a pagan court, serving pagan kings, surrounded by magicians, astrologers and officials who don't want him to succeed, Daniel is still Daniel. God is his judge. So how can he do that? How can we do that? How can we live consistent Christian lives, still engaged in the world but not compromising, still taking risks for the Lord? So as we go through Daniel 6, we're not going to go through the details of the familiar story of Daniel in the lion's den, but try and tease out the lessons of how he could live such a consistently godly life in such a hostile world from when he was a teenager till when he was a man in his 80s. So firstly, the first lesson, I think, is that Daniel expected conflict. Now, we often want to be liked, don't we? Uh, I certainly do. We think that if we treat people well, they will treat us well too. Most of us generally don't like to be seen to be different. So when people are mean to us, tease us for going to church, exclude us from conversations or social gatherings, or sack us for holding politically incorrect views, we are surprised and we panic. We think something must have gone horribly wrong. And maybe that God is not quite as good, quite as powerful as we had thought. But Daniel expected conflict. He knew he would never completely fit in, despite being in the running for prime minister and being at the heart of the system for decades. He knew that their values and God values would always be at at odds. He has been in Babylon for 66 years And in verse 13, once again, did you notice he's still described as Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah. Again, it's interesting, isn't it? He's Daniel, not Belteshazzar. He has never compromised his identity as one of God's people. He is not surprised or horrified by the official plot against him. And in verse 10, when he learns of the decree to throw anyone who prays to anyone else except the king into the lion's den, a decree specifically designed to kill him personally, he went home to his upstairs room and prayed three times a day, just as he had done before. So if we are living with God as our judge, living by his values, not those of the world, we will not fit and people will not like that. However kind, gentle, tactful and wise we are, 
there will be people who see our different values, opinions and way of life as a threat. And sometimes there might be plots specifically aimed to harm us. Now, you might be aware of the Asher Bakery case in Northern Ireland, which has been rumbling on for years. Um, it seems to be in a total setup, deliberately provocative act to ask a clearly Christian bakery to ice a cake in support of gay marriage, and then to sue them when they refused. That family has behaved with godliness, forgiveness, and wisdom in the face of tremendous hostility. Things like that will happen. We should expect it, not be thrown off course. We, like Daniel, are exiles. We should expect to be different. So don't conform, hoping to avoid conflict. Don't retreat, hoping to escape it. Expect it and keep going. Like Daniel, like Jesus. He lived the only perfect life ever lived. He was perfectly loving, perfectly good, showing God's values and character in a world that has rejected him, and it killed him. If we want to live for Jesus, like Jesus, like Daniel, we should expect conflict. And secondly, like Dan, we, Daniel, we also need to establish character. From the start, we have seen that Daniel was totally clear who he was. When he arrived in Babylon, he knew that he was God's man, that he would go God's way in Babylon, just as he had in Judah. In the first couple of, Judah, of years in Babylon, he made a great start, didn't he? But we all know that it is much easier to make a good start than to make a good end. Uh, I don't know, how are you going on? It's September. New Year's resolutions? Can you even remember what they were? Uh, I don't know, there are all these little things, dry January and Lent. I mean, I can't get beyond a few days whenever I even start them. A few years ago, I did Couch to 5K. I actually shared with Sheena in a room, and I was actually in the middle of that Couch to 5K, and I did my run. I did Couch to 5K. Um, I actually did the 5K, and I haven't run since. <laughs> Forming habits that last a lifetime is tough. We start well, and then we give up. But if we are to establish character that keeps us living for Jesus joyfully and faithfully into old age, like Daniel, we need to be establishing habits now that form our character in God's pattern and not the world's. So how did Daniel do that? Well, he established a godly and consistent character by establishing godly and consistent habits that made him God's man, not the king's, through his long and eventful life. He was consistent to the end. Wouldn't it be great to be like that? I mean, it's just so easy, isn't it, not to have a consistent character at all. Often because we're not really sure who we are at all. Are we the apparently self-confident manager that we appear to be at work? When we know that before every meeting, we are a bundle of nerves, terrified that we're not up to the job. Are we the trendy, attractive woman that goes out with her friends, worried that a makeup-free photo might turn up on Facebook? Are we the together capable mum with the oh-so-perfect children who has switched on the smile and switched off the yelling minutes before arriving in church? Which are we really? Who am I, really? The world is yelling at us to be authentic, to find the real you, whatever that takes. Changing jobs, changing partner, changing gender. Be true to the real you. But the Bible is very clear on who the real you is. You were created in God's image, 
for an eternal relationship with him. So that makes you more special, more valuable, than the most extreme self-esteem guru could ever tell you. But you also have a heart that naturally turns away from God, that wants to please itself and not him, that wants to put you centre stage instead of the Lord of heaven and earth. The you that you know only too well, but you're not keen for the rest of the world to see. The you that Jesus died for, so that you could enjoy the relationship with God that you were created for. To use somebody else's phrase, you are more sinful than you've ever imagined, but more loved than you ever dreamed. The real you is only ever the you that God created and relates to. The you that will last into eternity. Always unworthy, but always loved, accepted and valued. And we need to remind ourselves of that constantly, as we mentioned before, or the world's lies will creep in, telling me that to be loved and accepted, I need to be thinner, smarter, richer, married, single, a career girl, a stay-at-home mum, different. No, we are loved, accepted and valued by the Lord of the universe, whether we are fat or thin, rich or poor, married or single, at work or at home. Loved and accepted and valued, even though he knows every shameful thought, word and deed that we have ever done. Loved, accepted and valued so much that he came to earth to find us and bring us home. Even though that meant him being rejected, mocked, tortured and killed. So that is who we are now, into the future and into eternity And knowing that should define our character and behaviour today. But we need to establish habits that remind us that that is who we are, that help us to shut out the world's lies. And that is what we see Daniel doing. His character was established and consistent because he had established and consistent habits that reminded him who he really was and who God really was. Habits that made him and kept him different from the ungodly world around him. Habits that kept him faithful and habits that got him into trouble. Now, the most obvious one mentioned in this passage, isn't it, is prayer, which is mentioned in verse 10. Three times a day, in his upstairs room, facing Jerusalem, he prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Daniel's instinct from the start of his time in Babylon was to pray. When he volunteered to interpret the king's dream in Daniel 2, he went straight to his friends in 2.18 to ask them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning his mystery. After the dream was revealed to him, probably before as well, he prayed himself, praising God for who he is, and at the same time reminding himself, who is the true king? Who is the one who serves? Who is the one who has equipped him to serve in the earthly king's service? Is prayer an unbreakable habit for you? Now, as a very young Christian, I commented in a Bible study group that prayer was a discipline. No, dear, an elderly saint replied, prayer is a joy. At the time, I felt about this big, and I could not imagine a time when that might be the truth, and true for me. But I think, actually, we were both right. As our relationship with God grows and matures, we will enjoy time with him more and more. But it also needs to be an unbreakable habit if we are ever to build that relationship in the first time, the first place. Life is so busy, we are so fickle, Satan is so cunning, that unless prayer is as much an unbreakable habit as brushing our teeth 
We are in danger. I, many couples build in date nights, don't they, to their busy schedules to make sure they keep that relationship healthy. How much more vital is it for us to schedule regular times to spend with our Heavenly Father? Now, so-called emergency arrow prayers are vital in the midst of a busy day. A quick prayer for help before a tricky lesson at school, for more patience at kids' bath time, whatever it might be. But they are not enough. If the only time, if you're married, you spoke to your husband was to ask him to put the kettle on when you were in desperate need of a cup of tea, that relationship would soon be in trouble. We need to talk to God regularly and deliberately and to hear him speak to us in his word, the Bible. Daniel did this three times a day when he was basically running Babylon and being plotted against. I cannot use the excuse that I am too busy, nor can you. Fit it into your day, wherever works best for you. Some people are larks, some are owls, some pray kneeling, some sitting in a comfy chair, some claim to be able to pray while lying in bed. I know I can't, but if that works for you, just do it. Start today, if it's not a habit already. Establish the habit. Establish your character. Now, although it's not mentioned here specifically, we also know that Daniel established this godly character by being totally immersed in God's word, the Bible. The prayer in Daniel 2 shows that Daniel knows all about his God. How? From scripture. And in chapter 9, verse 2, in the first year of King Darius, the same time as the events in chapter 6, Daniel wrote, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, He read his Bible. He knew it. Do you? How will we be reminded of who we really are, who God really is, if we don't take time to hear him tell us? How will we know how we are to live distinctive and godly lives if we ignore what he has to say? Now, it's not always easy, is it? And ask for help if you need to. Ask someone to read with you or ask someone to check up on you, to ask you what you read today to keep you accountable. Establish the habit. Establish your character. And something else we see Daniel doing is meeting together with other believers. He called on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he needed prayer in chapter 2. He was a gifted and talented young man, but he was humble enough to ask for prayer and support from others, which is always a good idea. It seems they kept each other sharp and faithful to God. His three friends were also prepared to face death to stay faithful to God in chapter 3. Read it if you don't know. It's a brilliant story. In Babylon, faithful believers were few and far between. In Hampstead, it seems there were rather more. Do you meet with those who encourage and challenge you to stay sharp, to be more and not less faithful to God? But sometimes the danger is that you and your Christian friends might compromise in the same ways as each other and encourage each other in a rather flabby discipleship. Are you the kind of friend who challenges and encourages others to stand firm and keep faithful? Establish the habit. Establish the character. By Daniel 6, Daniel seems to be all on his own. He's 80-ish years old. His friends from Judah are probably now dead. He has no support except God. No one to cheer at his faithful stand. No one to impress with his godliness. He is Daniel. God is his judge. His lifelong habits have established a consistent godly character in private as he prays and in public as he faces first the lions and then the king. Daniel is God's man through and through. He is facing the most dangerous situation of his life totally alone, but he stands firm, faithful and consistent. 
knowing the God he serves. Again, just like Jesus, praying regularly, saturated in God's word. Even when he was a young lad visiting the temple and at the end, abandoned by his friends, totally alone, falsely accused and facing horrific death, standing firm, consistent from start to finish, in public and in private, at peace and in pain. If Daniel and even Jesus needed these daily habits, how much more do we? So more briefly, Daniel was also able to stand firm to the end because he envisaged the ending. Daniel knows how it ends. Not for him specifically, but in general. And that helps him to stand firm. Daniel was given the virtually unique God-given gift of being able to interpret the dreams and visions of others. He explained two dreams to Nebuchadnezzar, one vision to King Belshazzar in chapter 5, and none of the explanations end well for the king. All of them show that God is in total control of human history and that only God's eternal kingdom will last. And in later chapters, Daniel also has his own visions, which show more of the same. God is God, the future belongs to him, he wins. So all the phenomenally powerful men that Daniel works for are, in God's view, a tiny little blip in human history. And from our perspective, that is exactly what they are. Even their archaeological record has largely been destroyed by the power tools of ISIS. Long dead and irrelevant. And in chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel explains the long-term future to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, The king of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. In chapters 4 and 5, the prophecies are more personal, as Daniel reveals the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar and the death of Darius. Both prophecies are fulfilled, as will be the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. God is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one Daniel serves, not these here today, gone tomorrow dictators. Most perfect sense to Daniel to stand firm for the true king, whatever that cost. Ultimately, he's on the winning side. In the nearer future, Daniel knew from Jeremiah that the exile would end after 70 years. As he said in chapter, chapter 9, verse 2, which we saw before, God has not forgotten his people and he keeps his promises. Daniel knew he might never return from exile, but God is king and Daniel would serve him. And Jesus reminded his disciples of the same things in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he goes on to encourage them to stand stand firm in the face of hostile authorities, just as Daniel had to. God is God. He is king. He has history in his hands, and he will win. And on the cross, Jesus went on to show that God is in control. All those things we fear the most, sin, Satan, death. Even when things look their very worst, God was in control, the future in his hands. So the things that we are so worried about today, the people whose opinions we value or fear, those who seem so much more powerful than us, who make our lives a misery, or those whose attention makes us feel so important, all just a tiny blip, they will pass. God wins. Serve him. When Darius saw Daniel unharmed by the lions, even he seems to have come to the same conclusion. In verse 26, 
for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Now in the here and now, there is no guarantee of a happy ending for us personally. The evil boss who persecutes you daily may not have his or her comeuppance. The Christian refugees will not all find happy and safe homes in the West. We should be distressed at the world's depravity, as we saw earlier. But we know how it ends eventually, with God's perfect and eternal kingdom. Stand firm, God is the King of Kings. Envisage the ending, God wins. God is worth serving because he is God. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego expressed this brilliantly in Daniel 3, 17 to 18. They face being thrown into a fiery furnace for refusing to worship the king. And they say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God is God. Serve him. When he prayed, Daniel's room faced Jerusalem. And here we're not told why. Perhaps it was a reminder of home. He's 80. He knows he's never going back. Uh, Maybe it's the location of the temple, now destroyed and ransacked. A bit depressing. But also, Jerusalem was Zion, a place where God dwelt with his people. A picture of a time when that would be perfected and eternal. As David wrote in Psalm 133, verse 3, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. Was it for Daniel just another reminder of that certain ending? And even more than that, a promise that Daniel would endure beyond death. Now, I'm sure you know that in the Old Testament, resurrection hope is often a bit hazy. But Daniel received a wonderful promise of life beyond death. In Daniel 12, verse 13, a man clothed in linen speaks to Daniel in a vision. Several years after the events in Daniel 6, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. But Daniel's told this, As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So how far Daniel had this hope at the time of his trials with the lions, we don't know. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Amadengo, Daniel knew the ending, knew that God was God. He would have stood firm and served him anyway. But ultimately, he, like us, had a personal promise that death was not the end, that he would endure beyond death, that he would rise to receive his inheritance. His exile would end in a far better way than he could ever have imagined as he returned to his true home, not in Judah, but in heaven with God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. A place of perfect rest with God as king forever. In the light of such a future, death is no longer the enemy. It loses its power over us. People often say, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying, of pain. But the Bible says even fear of the pain can be diminished in the light of such an eternal and wonderful future guaranteed to us by Jesus' death on the cross in our place. That death was truly agonising, as I imagine Daniel being torn apart by lions would have been. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this, For the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Heaven is so great, even the cross was bearable for Jesus. 
And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, which is true for us too, whatever we go through, and remember Paul went through a lot, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But in the middle of the mess of life, we forget that, don't we? The here and now, whether good or dreadful, seems so much more important than eternity. Pleasing our friends or our boss seems more important. Fulfilling our needs now seems more important than looking forward to a future where every need will be met beyond our wildest imaginings. We are like those kids in the psychological tests who invariably choose one sweet now over a whole packet in an hour. We want something now, and we risk missing out on everything forever. It seems a bit bit short-sighted, doesn't it, really? It started with Adam and Eve, and we haven't learnt the lesson in all that time. If we are going to stand firm, consistently living a godly life, putting the Lord first and not ourselves, honouring him and not those the world tells us we should honour, we need to remember that we will endure beyond death. We will, like Daniel, rise to receive our allotted inheritance. Seeing the Lord Jesus face to face in a world it was always intended to be. Where according to Revelation 21, 2-4, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's far more than it ever was in the temple in Jerusalem, even before the exile. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That is our inheritance. So if we're going to live for Christ in 2019, in an often hostile, secular world, we need, like Daniel, to expect conflict. For those who put God first, that is the norm. Then establish character. Put in place permanent habits that will remind you who you really are, that you are first and foremost a woman of God, bought at the price of Jesus' death on the cross, to enjoy the relationship with your heavenly Father that you were created for. Pray, read God's word, be encouraged and challenged by others, and then envisage the ending. God wins. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, as even Darius acknowledges. Stand firm, you are on the winning side. And remember, you are, you will endure beyond death. There is so much better to come. So flat screen TVs, iPhone 103s, holidays in the Caribbean, multi-million pound bonuses. Stand firm for Jesus. They have nothing to the eternal glory that outweighs them all. Cancer, bereavement, redundancy, whatever heartbreak this messed up world has to throw at you, stand firm. They are nothing to the eternal glory that outweighs them all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Daniel and his wonderfully consistent godly life. Forgive us for the times when we are anything but consistent, when we fail you and live as if this world was all there was. I pray that you would help us to be more like Daniel in the way we live, that we would be focused on you, that we'd develop those habits, we'd expect conflict, remember that we are your children, and that we'd remember that you are the king, that you win, and that we would remember that there is eternity far uh, far better than we can even dream that awaits us. 
Dear Lord, please help us to stand firm day by day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.